All right, we're in Hebrews 3. So, um, to be a disciple, or the, the, you know, the idea or the concept of discipleship is to be a, a learner, uh, one who follows someone with the intent of receiving an anointing. And so an anointing, essentially when we use that word, uh, what it means is, is a supernatural impartation of desired attributes recognized to have come from God. Now, I know that's a mouthful, <laughs> you know, but that's what it is, really, in its simplest sense. It's, it's a supernatural imparting. In other words, we want something imparted to us um, that is a desired attribute. It's something that we want. There's something that we want upon our lives or in our lives or coming out of our lives that we recognize to be supernatural, that it's from God. It's not something that, that can come from man. And so we're following with the, with the goal or the objective or the intent of experiencing that anointing, to have the same thing that's in the one we're following imparted to us. And when we, we commit our lives to become a disciple, that's what we're pursuing. We want what can be imparted to us, in us, from the one we're following. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't just mean that we're following him. You know, he didn't come to call followers, converts, people that would ascribe to his system. He called disciples, meaning that he calls us because we want to be like him, and he is willing to impart that to us. So, you know, when we read in the Bible and we, we kind of look at this concept of discipleship, we see Moses and Joshua. That's kind of probably the earliest example of, 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 of a man who had a follower um, who was a disciple, and Joshua was essentially a disciple of Moses. And so he saw something in Moses, and, and Moses' person had such an impact on Joshua as a young man that he became a follower of Moses, a disciple of Moses, to the intent that what Moses had, Joshua would also one day receive. Now, he knew it wasn't Moses, but it was God that was in Moses that he was after. That's why it says of Joshua that even when Moses departed from the tabernacle, Joshua didn't. Because they knew it wasn't Moses. <laughs> it's in Moses. It's going to come from somehow through him. But what I want is God. And he saw something of God in Moses, and so he followed him. When Elijah, years and years later, uh, would be told by God to anoint Elisha, who would become the prophet after him, it says that Elisha, uh, Elijah, I know it gets confusing because their names sound alike, but Elijah walked past Elisha, and it says that he just threw his mantle, his, cover, his I don't know if it was a cloak or, or just a, a shawl, he threw it on Elisha, and just the impact of that one encounter had such an impact on Elisha, just the, the, the mantle of Elijah touching him, there was something so impacting about that that he immediately quit his job, sold his tools, gave the money away, essentially, you know, and said, all right, I'm following you. That, that what he saw in him was something that was so worth having 
that he gave up everything he had, and he said, from now on, I'm going to follow you. And he spent 10 years just wash. It says that he washed his hands and his feet. That's what it says, that he was just his disciple. But what he was pursuing was the anointing. And we know that because at the end of Elisha's Elijah's course, when he was going to go, Elisha was with him, and, and Elijah, the older, said to Elisha, the younger, what do you want? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of the anointing that's upon your life. You had such an impact on me the first moment that I met you that I wanted what you had. And so I've been in this place of discipleship these years because I want what you have. It's not you, it's what's in you from above. You understand? Now, Jesus, in the days of Jesus, the rabbis that were in the days of Jesus, they would have disciples that would follow them. And the idea behind the disciples of the rabbis was that those disciples wanted to be like the rabbis. They wanted to have of God what the rabbis had. And it was a great honor in those days to be called by a rabbi to be a disciple. The rabbis would have their schools and their disciples. And that was kind of like the equivalent in in their day of in our day having a very high prestige, like being accepted to an Ivy League school or being called into some honor. That was what the parents hoped for, is that they would be called by a rabbi, to be a disciple of the rabbi. And that's why when Jesus first started his earthly ministry and he began calling disciples, that's why they were so eager to just leave everything and go follow him. And so, you know, we read about how Peter and Andrew and James and John, they, they had their own business and they were profitable. And yet when Jesus just said, come follow me, it just says that they just forsook everything. They, they jumped out of the boat. They left their nets. They went and followed. There was no, they didn't even talk to the father who, who was kind of in charge of things. They just went. Because when you get that call to follow a rabbi, you go. Now, they didn't know he was the son of God. They didn't even know what they were getting into. They saw, this is what we want. This is what we live for. And so we're going to go. And that's an amazing honor to be called by Jesus. Now, I want you to just think about it for a moment because Jesus told his first disciples to go make disciples. And so he calls universally. He, He has called us. That's why we're here this morning. And he has said, come follow me. And it's the highest honor to be called, not by Moses, not by Elisha, Elijah, by Jesus, not by some rabbi, but by Jesus, the Son of God, has called us to be disciples of his. And that's an honor because of who he is, he's God. But even more so to realize that the purpose, the reason, is because he wants to impart anointing to us. The same the same relationship that he demonstrated with the Father when he was on the earth, he wants to impart to us. He wants us to experience the anointing. He wants us to have the supernatural impartation of desired attributes recognized to have come from God. That's what he wants for us, and that's what he's called us into. And the thing that makes that so amazing is that if he calls us to follow him in that way, then that means that he's able to perform the work that's necessary. And so our pursuit of discipleship is not simply to be learners for the sake of information, but it's to be followers to the end that there would be impartation of his spirit in our lives that we might become like Jesus that we might be and have what he has. And that's an amazing thing uh, to realize. 
Um, now, at the beginning of this, this year of discipleship, I want to start in this passage in Hebrews chapter 3, and I want to just give to us a reminder, something that we probably need to hear. I know that I needed to hear it. This comes from, this doesn't come from God, what do you want to say to them? <laughs> this comes from God, what do you need to say to me? And this is, that's what I'm giving to you this morning, is, is, is just what I need to hear from God, what I am hearing from God in this season uh, that I'm in. And so I, I want to share it with you. Now, as far as the context goes, because we're, we're, we're not starting in chapter 1, we're in chapter 3 here, um, the, the, the letter to Hebrews, we don't know who the author is, um, but, but it was written to Jewish converts in the first century. And so that's why it's called Hebrews, because they were Jews that received Christ, and in, in the process of receiving Christ, they were no longer considered Jews, so they're Jewish converts to Christianity. And in so doing, receiving Christ, they had to pay a very high price to do it. It's very much like today when you hear about someone that lives in a Muslim nation that converts to Christianity. The first thing they often do is dig their grave because they're going to be forsaken by their family. They're probably going to lose their marriage, uh, and most likely they're going to lose their life if, if it's found out that they have left uh, Allah to serve Jesus because the two are at such odds, especially in that portion of the world. And so to convert to Christianity from Islam, you pay a high price. That's what it was like in the first century for a Jew. You might not be killed. You might, but you would be ostracized and cut off. It would come at a high cost. But that's primarily what the first church was. It was Jews that converted to Christ. Now, because of the price that they paid, many of them uh, began to feel the pressure of that persecution, and they were beginning to waver. They were beginning to say, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. Uh, we, we've given our lives, we're following, we see something in Jesus that we want for ourselves, but we're also feeling the pressure of what it's costing to follow him in this way, and I'm not sure. And they were wavering, and some of them were beginning to turn back. And so the purpose, uh, the whole purpose that Hebrews was written was as an encouragement and an exhortation and a warning to these Jewish believers that they were making a big mistake if they were to forsake Jesus to go back to what they came from. And you might think, well, that doesn't relate to me. I'm not a Jewish convert. No, but we are converts. We all have left something in order to pursue Jesus. Just like the disciples forsook their nets, just like Elisha left his job, you know, we left the world and we're following Jesus now and it costs us something. It comes at a high cost and, and, and it happens to us that the pressure of life causes us to question, is it worth it? Is what it costs us to follow Jesus worth it to continue pursuing him in this way? And so uh, um, do we want to fall back? Now, he has two um, motives, the writer of Hebrews does, in, in presenting this. Number one is that he wants to show Jesus in his glory. Because, you know, you want to remind people of why, why you left. And then the second thing is to give them a warning concerning the dangers of turning away. So he shows them Jesus. That's what happens all throughout Hebrews, is he just shows them Jesus in his superiority, in his glory, just lifts them up. And that's all you got to do a lot of times. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so he just keeps saying, remember Jesus. And then after each heralding of that, he gives a warning. And he says, if you turn away, 
this is what's going to happen. And that's the pattern of the whole book. You just go through Hebrews. It's Jesus warning, Jesus warning, Jesus warning. And so chapter 3 is a warning passage. Chapters 1 and 2 is a Jesus passage. He holds them up and he says, look at who Jesus is. Look at this great salvation. Look at what God the Father says about the Son. Look at how unique Jesus is among any that have ever lived. Look at what his promise is and what he's called us into. This is Jesus, and now he gives the warning. So chapter 3, verse 1, wherefore, and that's connective, because of this, because of who Jesus is, because of this great salvation, he says, wherefore, holy brethren, now, that's an amazing title that's been given. That's you and I. We've been called holy, that means set apart, and we're brothers, which means that we're part of a family. Partakers of the heavenly calling. That means that, that we have been included in the number of those or on the roll call of those that have citizenship in heaven. That we have been made partakers of Christ, partakers of this great salvation. Our destiny is to live with God eternally. He says we're partakers. It's what we've been made already. He says consider, that means think about, that means evaluate, make a decision based upon evidence, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, by calling him an apostle, he is calling us disciples, right? If he's the apostle, then we're the followers. He said, you have agreed. You said that you wanted to follow Jesus. He's the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, who, Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, even as Moses was faithful in all his house. Okay, now I want you to pay attention for a minute to that word house, because the word house in the Bible speaks of a family. So remember when it talks about the house of David? The house of David meant the lineage of the kings. So those that were descendants of David were a part of the house of David. And so he's saying that Moses was faithful in his house and Jesus is faithful in his house. Okay, so the house of Jesus is all of those that are born in his lineage or those that are included in his family. And so that's where we come in. Because we've been born again by the Spirit of God, we are part of the household of Christ. We're in his house. We're descendants, in a sense, brothers, in a sense, of Jesus. This is an amazing thing that we've been included in. And, and he brings to mind the faithfulness of it all in that Moses was faithful to pass on to his descendants what was necessary for their success. Jesus is also faithful to pass on to his descendants, his family, that which is necessary for success. He's faithful. He says, for this man, Jesus, verse 3 I'm in, was counted worthy, considered worthy of more glory than Moses. He's a greater leader than Moses, insomuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. Okay, now we understand that in practical terms, right? If you see a beautiful house and you congratulate someone for having a beautiful house, that congratulations is kind of shallow because all I did was shell out money for it. But if you meet the person that built such a fine house, there is some glory. There's some honor to be bestowed. Even if he's not the owner of the house, he gets more glory than the owner of the house because he's the one that made it. He's the craftsman with the talent. 
And so Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses and that Jesus didn't, Moses didn't build his house. Moses was called into it. God built Moses' house. And Jesus is God, and therefore, he's worthy of more glory than Moses. He says, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. For Moses, truly, was faithful in all his house as a servant. He was just called into that role, and he was faithful in that role, and thus he is to be honored. But, he says, it was for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken thereafter. But Jesus, now watch this, because this is, this is amazing, what he says here. It's very profound, it's very deep, and he says it very quickly. Watch this. But Christ as a son over his own house. Now that's a paradox. He's a son over his house, which means that he was born into what he is also over. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's impossible. How can you be over what you are a descendant of? But that's the glory of the gospel, is that in order for Jesus to be qualified to call us and include us, he had to first become one of us. And so Jesus was born into the human race, flesh and blood, in order that through his death and resurrection, he might then be exalted over it, giving him authority, which allows him now to call us into the family with the authority to impart to us Christ-likeness, the anointing of what it is that we're pursuing when we follow him. He was a son born into what he would be over. As a son over his own house, Whose house we are. Now, here's the warning. It begins in the middle of verse 6. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. Remember, the audience that the Hebrew writer is addressing here is being tempted to turn away from Jesus because of the pressures, because of the temptations, because of the battles, because of the difficulties, because of the resistance in the flesh, because of all of the pressures that it is to follow Jesus, the difficulties of what it means, they were tempted to turn away. And he says, these promises are given to us. This hope that we have is ours if we hold fast. Now, when you hold fast to something, this is a phrase that's used a few times in the New Testament. It means that there is a force trying to rip something out of your hands. And to hold it fast means that you have an intention to not let it go. That I'm not holding this loosely. I'm not holding this as a convenience. I'm not setting it down beside me. And as long as it stays there on its own, I'm happy to have it with me. But there's such an intentionality about holding on to it that no matter what force tries to pull this away from me, I'm going to hold on to it. And because the things of God are so contrary to the world we live in and so contrary to this body that we live in, if we don't hold on to it, the forces of the world and of the flesh are just going to make it vaporize and disappear from before us. And so he's saying, listen, this isn't something to be taken lightly. 
But if we're to hold fast the confidence, what's the confidence? Confidence is the hope, right? The hope of something to be obtained that we set out in pursuit of. Why did Elisha quit his job, sell his tools, and give the money away and follow Elisha, Elijah? Because he had confidence that he was going to receive what he was in pursuit of. There was a confidence there. Why have we left the world, forsaken the flesh, and repented of our sins that we enjoyed in order to embark on a following of Jesus? Why do we do that? Just so that we could say that we're there? No, because we had a confidence that we're going to obtain what it is that we set out in, for, in pursuit of. There's a confidence. He's saying, hold on to that confidence. Don't let that confidence be ripped away from you. And the rejoicing of hope. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. I have hope in what I've gone out for. Firm unto what? The end. All the way. Don't let it go. And here's the warning that he begins uh, in this section, verse 7. He says, wherefore, because of this, or this is why, as the Holy Ghost says, today, if you will hear his voice. Now, I want you to pay attention to that word. In verse 7, that word will. Do you see it there? He says, today, if you will hear his voice. Do you know what the word will means? No. It means want. Okay. If we will something, we want something, right? If we will something, then I will. Thy, when we say, thy will be done, we're saying, God, what you want. We ask someone, what is your will concerning this? What do you want? And so what he's saying here is saying, if you want to hear God's voice, if you want to be in relationship with God, if you want the intimacy of fellowship with him, if you want the reward of what it is to follow, and he's quoting from Psalm 95 here, he's just quoting scripture. He says in verse 8, he says, then, here it is, here's what we're to do, here's the warning. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. He says, then harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Don't let your heart become hardened. That's, that's what he's warning here. Now, he's going to give us some insight into what that means, because I can't see my heart. I can't touch my heart. I can't look it up on an iPhone screen you know, in order to make adjustments to it and like turn down the hardening degrees. You know, I, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't know what that means. And so he's got to give me a little more than just don't harden your heart. You know, what am I supposed to get in touch with my feelings? Like, I don't know what that means. You know, he says, harden not your hearts. And here's, here's the example. As in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your father's tempted me and proved me and saw my works for 40 years. Okay, so here's the example. This is, this is how hardening of heart happens in the heart of someone who's following God. Way back in Old Testament times, when God first called his people out of Egypt, which is a picture of salvation, they were saved out of bondage, there was a prescribed period of time, 40 years, that they were to wander in confusion and in a degree of poverty and in a degree of need that was measured by God for the sake of preparation, cultivation, and purification. 
It was prescribed by God for a reason because he was using that time of difficulty, of trial, to do things in them that needed to be done in order for them to receive the anointing of the promised land. In order for them to receive what they went in pursuit of when they left Egypt, they needed to be prepared and that preparation was difficult. There was pain in that time. There was want in that time. There was famine in that time. They needed things in that time. They didn't have everything that they wanted. And and it felt like God was distant. It felt like God had abandoned them. They were being tested. They were being tried. They were being prepared. They were being refined, purified. Things were being taken out of their lives. It hurts when things are taken out of our lives. And during that time of temptation... They responded not with trust, not with faith, not with perseverance, but rather, he says, that they tempted me. That's the first thing that happened. In other words, they responded not with trust, but with ingratitude and entitlement. Meaning that no matter what God gave them during that time, it was never enough. If God gave them water, they complained that they didn't have food. If God gave them bread, they complained that they didn't have meat. When God gave them meat, they complained that they didn't have onions. That literally, that literally happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, every single time God gave them something, they kept saying, well, if he's God, then he should be able to also give us this. God gave me... He gave me a bicycle. Where's the car? I deserve a car. Then he gave him a car. And he says, they said, well, it's not a Cadillac. We belong to God. I mean, this is the living God. I mean, we should be, have, you know, heated seats at least in this thing. God, I'm living in an apartment. Can you give me a house? And God gives a house. You know, I would like a yard. Could I get a house with some grass? And then he gives him a lawn. They said, you know, an X mark would be really nice. You know, a zero turn. You know, I, at least, please, you know, give me something, God. Throw me a bone. That's, temp- that's what it means. To temp- it's, it's to never be satisfied with what God gave you. It's no matter what he gives me, I'm constantly looking at what I don't have rather than seeing that he's provided for the things that I do have. Because there's a season of our lives where we're, that's, we're to trust him. We're learning how to trust him. We're learning how to say, okay, you've called me to follow you. You say that you're going to provide for all my needs. And so what I have today must be enough. Thank you for doing that for me. But it wasn't for them. It was the day of trial and they provoked him. They, they tempted him. Then it says, not only that, but it says that they proved me for 40 years. Now, what does it mean to prove God? It means that their attitude toward God was prove yourself. Prove yourself worthy of my adherence to following you. Prove yourself. Okay, I will give you that it is normal, natural, and expected that you might have that attitude in a relationship for a season, right? I meet my wife and we're getting to know each other, and we all have our masks and our shields that we put up, you know, and our fronts that we put on, and we're in a relationship trying to peel back those layers. I'm, do I trust you enough to let you in a little further on me? Do you trust me enough to let, let, let me in a little bit further on you? And we're doing this whole thing. And so we get married, and a year into the marriage, I, I feel a little bit of a suspicion 
You know, that is she really, is she really, is she really faithful to me? Does she really, is she really mine? And so I take her phone and I open up the code and I go through her text messages. Okay, we've only been married a year and maybe I'm not totally secure. And so I go through her text messages and I read them all. I see all her contacts. I read every text message, even the one she thought she deleted, you know, And and I read them all. And I find in reading all of her text messages that there is nothing Nothing in all of those messages that should make me feel uncomfortable, suspicious, or untrustworthy, untrusting towards her. Ah, I sigh of relief. But then a week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, and I still am insecure as to whether or not she really loves me and if I really can trust her. And so five years into the marriage, I pick up her phone again, and I go through the exercise, and she sees me do it. And she says, what are you doing? I say, I'm just checking through your... Just <laughs> 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 go ahead. So I look through and I go through and I see it again. I go, okay, you know she's good. She's trying. okay, but I still don't trust her. And so ten years into the marriage, I grab her phone and I do it again. God says, "I have been faithful. I have not failed you." You have not gone hungry. Your shoes haven't worn off from your feet. I have been faithful for 40 years. 40 years I have not failed you, and yet you are still checking my text messages every day looking for the loophole of where I'm going to fail you or where you're on trial or where I don't love you. You No, I have been faithful, and yet you have put me, God says, you have put me in a place where you've said, prove yourself. For 40 years you haven't been able to trust me. And you know what the, the, the response of God was? Watch this, verse 10. He says, wherefore, I was grieved with that generation. How would you feel if you were faithful to your wife for 40 years, and after 40 years, your wife was still going through your phone and checking to see if you were doing something on the side that you shouldn't be doing? And you, in your heart, have been faithful and loving to her, but you find out that for 40 years, she has never felt secure that you really loved her. What would be the emotional response you'd have? You'd be grieved. You'd be sad. I've loved you, and yet you've never trusted in that love. And that was the heart of God towards his people. They, they, they wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't trust him. After everything that he had done for them, setting them free from Egypt, bringing them out from that bondage, providing for them, setting them up in the land, building an army for them, preparing the way, giving them the promise of the kings and the kingdom and the Messiah that was to come. And through them would come the promises and the word of God and the Savior Jesus into the world and that there would never be a nation like them. They couldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. They kept taking their life back into their own hands. They kept trying to manage things themselves, trying to manipulate and use the things that God had given them to, to, to do things themselves. And so God says... So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. In other words, the anointing's not going to come. They're not, this generation is not going to come. Their heart has become hardened. They've departed. Take heed. Here it is, verse 12. Take heed, brothers. This is you and I. Take heed. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a warning if a warning isn't needed. God doesn't give a warning unless a warning is necessary. He says, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
to come to a point in your walk where because his ways are confusing or you can't figure out what he's doing or you're going through something that's particularly painful or you don't have the answers to a problem or a situation or life throws you a curveball that you didn't expect and that you don't like and you say, you know what, God was, he's been great to this point, but I can't trust him now in this. I'm going to handle this one on my own. I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to pray about it. I'm, I'm going to stop seeking godly counsel. I'm going to stop going to the word of God. I'm going to stop. I can't, I can't afford to follow Jesus as closely as I would like to because I have to give myself to, to other things because obviously God's not taking care of things in my life. That's what it means, to un, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He says back in verse 10, he says that they always err in their heart because they haven't known my ways. See, when God looked at what the children of Israel were doing, and when he looks at us when we, when we, when we depart from him, he, he's calling it an error on us, and, and he says that the error that we're making is that we don't know his ways, is that we haven't come to know him. You, you know, uh, the Bible talks about the ways of God like this. If you look at, you don't have to, I, uh, if you look at um, Psalm 103, verse 7, it's up on the screen. It says, that, it says that he made, this is God, he made his ways known unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. Do you see the difference there? His ways were made known to Moses, but his acts to the children of Israel. They saw what he did. They saw the Red Sea, the bread, the birds, the meat. They saw God do all. They saw all that, but they didn't understand his ways. Moses knew God's ways. Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, or your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God says, I don't do things the way you do things. My ways are different than the way you do things. And so what happens is that when life throws us a curveball, we have the ways in which we would handle or prevent or, you know, navigate. And we say, well, that's not the way I would do it. And so we say, well, God, you must not know what you're doing because no one would do things this way if they wanted this outcome. That's not the way it works. And here's what God says. God says, look, I know you love me. I know you want to follow me, but please don't try to change me. Anybody ever had their wife say that to them? <laughs> I know you love me. Please don't try to change me. God says, look, I know you would like me to change and conform my ways to be more like your ways because it's more comfortable for you. God says, I don't do that. Man was created in God's image. God is not created in man's image. And here's a secret that you need to know about the ways of God. It's Psalm 77, verse 19. This is the most painful realization that any man can ever have. And that is that your way, his way, is in the sea, and your path is in the great waters. Your footsteps are not known. Have you ever tried to follow a trail in the ocean? A hiking trail in the ocean. That's a very difficult path, because as soon as you lay a footprint on it, it's gone. You cannot see a pathway in the ocean or in the great waters. And God says, the way that my path goes is so unknown by you, it would be like trying to follow a trail in the middle of the ocean. It is absolutely impossible. You cannot do it. You can't see it. And if we don't understand his ways, 
then when things come, if we don't trust him, then we're just going to forsake it and say, I'm going to handle this myself because it's more secure. I feel like I could handle it. That's what they were doing. He says, take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but rather, verse 13, exhort one another daily. That's what we're doing today. While it is called today, listen, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see those words, the deceitfulness of sin? Sin is very deceitful, isn't it? Because here's here's what sin, how sin deceives. Sin lies. Sin speaks very loudly. Sin speaks louder than God. And here's what sin says. Sin says, this isn't destructive. That's lie number one. This isn't destructive. This isn't going to destroy your life. You can do this. You can do this and and let this be a part of your life. And it's not going to wreck anything. This can be a fixture in your house and it will affect nothing else. That's what sin says. Sin also says that, that sin doesn't, I don't matter anymore because of grace. I, I'm no longer, I've lost my teeth. So you can let me in. I don't bite anymore because the blood of Jesus has taken away my teeth. And so you can let me into your life and I'm not going to do any damage in there because grace is just going to wash it all away. And so grace makes it so that now you can sin and, and you can just say you're sorry. It's okay. That's what sin says. That lie comes from sin. Sin says, let me in. I got no teeth. Dentures. (laughs) Fix it and forget it. Number three, sin deceives. It says this. It says, you can have your sin and you can still retain the blessing of God in your life. You can have sin, just sin, and and God is going to continue to keep on just showering blessing on you. You can have both. The pleasures that your flesh demands and you can have the blessing of God. Another lie. Sin Sin says, I can be controlled. Let me in, and you could just keep me at the right distance, or you can, you can, you know, keep me in the mud room, and I promise I won't get out or in. You just keep me, you can control me, you put me right where you want me, at the right orbit distance from the center of your life, and I'll stay right there. You can control me. That's what sin says. There's never been a man, woman, or being that has ever, ever, ever controlled sin. Number five, sin says, You can go back to sin, and you can keep all the good things that God has already done in your life. He's renewed your mind. He's renewed your marriage. He's given you a work ethic and the ability to provide for yourself. He's given you a business. God has done all these things in your life. You can let me back in, and you can still keep all those other things. Nothing's going to happen to any of that. Sin also says that it won't create a hardening of the heart. I won't callous you. I won't make it so that you can't feel God's presence. I won't make it so you don't have confidence to pray. I won't make it so that you don't feel like going to church. I don't do that. I'm just a little release. You'll still want God. Someone once said, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. And sin will keep you from a whole lot more. Sin also lies, and sin will tell you this. Very subtle, but this is like one of the more advanced lies once it's gotten a hold. Sin will say, you don't really need God. You don't really need God. You can do it on your own. And sin is just making room for itself when it says that. Because, you know, once we don't need God, then I can allow, well, I can allow sin in even more. And then finally, once sin really has a hold on a life. The last lie that sin tells 
is you can't have God. You can't have God. Wait, how did we get here? How did we get from this doesn't matter to now you can't even have God? That matters. (laughs) But sin's in me, so now I'm so guilty that sin is lying and saying don't even try to go back because you can't have God. You've sinned yourself out of his favor. You've sinned yourself out of his presence. You can't have him anymore. You see how deceitful sin is? It lies from every angle. That's what sin does. It just lies. Sin is a liar. And he's saying, exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? So there are three ways in this passage that you can have your heart hardened, which is what we're trying to avoid. Number one is through unbelief. Not believing that God is for me, that God is going to keep me, that he has a plan, that he's going to bring me to the place of anointing, that what I started following him for is worth it. When I stop believing that, I'm in danger of a hard heart. The second is departure, is when I subtly in my heart just turn a few degrees away from God because I'm now trusting in myself. I'm departing from him. I'm turning. I'm withdrawing a little bit. And then number three is I allow sin in. I'm hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I let a little bit of sin in, and it starts to harden my heart. And the outcome of that is that I fail to enter in. That's how, if you go to the end of the chapter, that's what it says. Uh, n- notice what, what, um, what he says in verse 19, if you just turn there. He says, so we see then that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You know, he finishes off the warning by saying this in verse 14. He says, for we are made partakers of Christ. There's that word again. Remember partakers? He used it back up in verse 1. Partakers of the heavenly calling. He says, listen, we are partakers of Christ. There's a reason for this discipleship. There's a reason we're following him. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. That's what it is. Uh, Our hearts can become hard. And if our hearts become hard, then we have an inability to experience God. We have an inability to hear his voice. We can't hear him. We have an inability to experience the joy of being in his presence. We become detached from the good emotions that God lifts up in us by his spirit in our lives. If our heart becomes hard, we become desensitized to conviction, to the work of God in our heart. We devalue his nearness and say that it doesn't matter to us. And we become distant from God. That's what happens when our heart becomes hard. When our heart becomes hard, we become distant from the people that that we love. Our marriages begin to break down. Our hearts become hard so we don't have tenderness towards our spouse, towards our wife. Uh, We get bitter and we start complaining against them. The, The relationships that we have with other people, people in the body of Christ, even extended family members, brothers and sisters biologically, or church people, groups, home studies, our hearts get hardened and our relationships start to break down and we just get isolated because our heart's hard. We can't afford to let anybody in. We don't even know how to let anybody in anymore because our hearts have become hardened. And he's saying that you don't want to do that. You don't want your heart to become hardened and it's that important. He says, don't depart from the living God. Don't depart from him. One of the ways of God that is so mind-boggling to me is the way that he produces change in our lives. He doesn't sound a trumpet or 
like blow a horn or even say that he did it. He just does it in such a subtle and secret way that you don't even know that he did it. And there's a danger in that. There's a big danger in it because we miss it. He does something in our lives and we miss it. And that's how we provoke him. Because, you know, we want something to change in our lives and then it changes, but we don't recognize that it changed and we're immediately on to the next thing that we want to see happen and we give no regard to what he's already done. And so we think God's not working in our life, but really he's working. His way is just that he does it in secret. How is it that Jesus was able to cleanse 10 lepers and nine of them didn't even realize it enough to go back and say thanks, right? Only one was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> new lot of, I don't have, I can, I mean, think about how huge that is. You just went from death sentence to brand new. And nine out of 10 didn't even realize it happened. When I was 19 years old, I lost my mind. I, I couldn't put two thoughts together. I, I thought I was literally going clinically insane. It's a huge part of what drove me to salvation is I lost my ability to talk to people. I couldn't even think. I couldn't even write down my thoughts because they were spinning so fast through my head that before I could stop long enough to write it down, it was gone, and I couldn't remember even what I was thinking about. I was literally losing my mind. I was going insane. There was an aching loneliness in me. I would sit on my college campus in the middle of a field and I would watch people. I would watch couples sitting on a a blanket or two people and I was so achingly alone and I I didn't have the ability to even have a, a real relationship. I would go to parties, but I couldn't relate to anybody. I was so achingly lonely at that time of my life. I had no direction, no skills, and no hope. That's where I was. I was doing nothing. I was going nowhere. That was the direction of my life. And I had the seeds of some destructive addictions already beginning to germinate in in me, things that would take me out in my life. That's where I was at the point that I gave my life to Christ. Now, I came to him, and that's, you know, the, the story in and of itself. And within a period of a couple of weeks or a couple of months, he began to put my mind back together. He did it as I was reading the Bible. So I started reading the Bible, and the Bible started making sense to me. I started reading the book of Romans, and so I was reading Romans, and Romans was making sense. And I began sharing with people the things that I was learning in the Bible. I would go to church, and I would just get in a conversation, and I would tell people the things that I was learning in the Bible, you know, and and how amazed I was at it. I would call Georgia, who was just my friend at the time. She had already been a Christian for a couple of years. And I would just tell her the things that I would learn with great excitement. Pretty soon I realized, and it was very soon, that, that I was memorizing whole portions of Scripture that I wasn't even trying to memorize. I would just say, hey, yeah, like it says in the Bible. And I would just start quoting, and verses would cling together, stick together. And then I would go, and that's like it, what Jesus said in Matthew. And, 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 and this whole, and, and, and what was, here's what happened. God gave me my mind back. And I didn't even know it happened. I never connected the dots that a few months ago, I couldn't put two thoughts. It just happened so gracefully that I missed it. I didn't even know he did it. He was giving me a gift to teach his word. And I didn't know that he even renewed my mind. He does it that subtly. He then gave me Georgia as my wife. He didn't just give me a wife. He gave me Georgia as my wife. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing to me. 
And then he gave me a family. He taught me a trade. He allows me, allowed me and allows me to teach his word and to serve in his ministry. He's given me a house and tools beyond just the physical, but, but invisible tools. He has given me resources. He's done so much in my life. And yet in my stupidity, I'm always going, God, why isn't this working out? You know, why are you not, you know, and, and why am I still struggling? And, you know, and, and here's what happens is that we get our eyes on what we don't have. We fail to recognize what he has done. Our heart becomes hardened. We slowly and subtly shift. And here's the danger is that you can end up right back where you were before he did anything in your life at all. Because in an evil heart of unbelief, you can turn from him in such a way where you say, I'm going to take my renewed mind now, and I'm going to take my wife and kids in my house, and I'm going to turn it into something that I can use to do what I want done in life. Do you realize you've just what you've done? You've taken God's grace And now you're going to use it because you think you can do better in your life than what God's already done for you. It's stupidity. And yet that's what a hardened heart does. And so the writer says this. He says, take heed, brothers, and exhort one another daily while it is today. Trust him. Believe him. He called you to be his disciple. For the sake of imparting to you something supernatural that you see in him, and he's able to finish what he started. The anointing that you're seeking in following him will come. Don't be discouraged because you don't understand his ways, because his pathway isn't predictable, because it's painful while things are being cut out of your life and things are being purified. Because you can't see the way in which he's doing things and it doesn't happen like this. Stay the course. Keep your heart soft. Stay in relationship with one another. Give thanks for what he's done. Recognize where you are today and how God is the one that put you there. And don't stop trusting him. Keep following. Keep following. Amen?